Okay, Atif, I'd like you to present your 59-year-old man. He's actually a physician in our hospital. In 2001, he was diagnosed as having Duke C colon cancer. He, in fact, diagnosed it himself. He underwent surgery at that time. and What kind he, of a doc was he, incidentally? He was a pulmonologist. He underwent surgery at that time. I didn't see him at that time. He was seen by somebody else. And he received six months of 5-fluorouracil and leucovorin in the adjuvant setting. Where was the primary tumor? Rectal or colon? Or? No, it was colon. Colon. At that time, he had nine nodes, and he had three of those positive in 2001. He did well for almost five years. That's when I saw him in 2006, when on routine testing, his CEA was found to have increased gradually over six-month period from two to three, and then it jumped to 11.5 over a period of six months. He had a PET CT because of the CEA, and that revealed multiple liver lesions in both lobes of the liver. CT-guided biopsy of one of the nodules in the right lobe revealed adenocarcinoma, moderately differentiated, consistent with colon primary. Before you go on, Rich, any thoughts about the diagnosis of metastatic disease here at five years? Well, I think you did the right thing by biopsying, just to be sure that this wasn't another primary, and I would have done that as well. After the biopsy, the patient was started on chemotherapy. He had a port cath inserted, and he was started on modified Fulfax 6 with bifacizumab. He received four cycles, and the CEA after that went down to from 11.5 to 4.3. We followed him actually with CT scans at that time, and they revealed more than 50% reduction in the tumor size with no new lesions, but there was still persistent lesions in both lobes of the liver. Did he have right predominant, left predominant, or was he really sort of this peppered, sprinkled kind of metastatic It, it really was diffused in both. He finished the four cycles, then he continued on chemotherapy. He did very well. He received a total of nine cycles, and he started having peripheral neuropathy post 7-8. He actually had a grade 2 peripheral neuropathy. At that time, we repeated his scans, and it showed minimal reduction after nine cycles compared to after four cycles. Now, is he working? Yes. So he was, he was working. Did he have a problem with the neuropathy in terms of, you know, bronchoscopy or whatever? Later on, he actually started having some problems. Exactly. That's why he didn't want more chemotherapy. Absolutely. And at that time, after he finished the nine cycles, he asked me, what should he do? Since he has not had major reduction in the tumor between the fourth and the ninth, still unresectable tumors in the liver. What we did at that time, he didn't want any chemotherapy at all. He didn't want 5-FU, leucovorin, or oxaliplatin. But I actually continued him on bifacizumab alone. He did well for around three months. In February of this year, his CAA started going up. Now it's around 14 and we repeated his scans, and clearly there are new lesions in the liver, and the old ones, many of them, more than half of them, are larger, and they are in both lobes. Therefore, he received bifacizumab alone for around three months, and he progressed on bifacizumab. The question is, what to do at that time? Still no disease outside the liver. I talked to him, and he was started a couple of months ago. Actually, I recommended that he moves to chemotherapy, and he is now on full theory. And I kept bifacizumab, and I kept it the same dose, the 10 milligrams per row. And what's been going on during this entire time in terms of the bevacizumab, hypertension, any other problems? No, he had one bout of hypertension. He's not hypertensive. Now he is on a small dose of Altase 
of five milligrams a day and well controlled. What's his quality of life been like since this time? You know, it really was very good to excellent until the last two months of 2006 when he took a long vacation. He's still working. He went back to work, but he took a long vacation so that he can enjoy his life. But is he having symptoms from the tumor or has he had symptoms? No, from the the tumor at all. His peripheral neuropathy already is much better. What's his attitude been like that? I'm always curious when you all have patients who are healthcare professionals, particularly docs, is he trying to kind of follow everything or is he sort of just turning to you? You know what? He's turning to me, but he doesn't even do everything I tell him sort of. I mean, he has always an excuse for not showing up on Monday or not showing up on Tuesday. He has a good relationship with nurses. Most of the times I know when he received the chemotherapy after he receives it, really. How does he feel about being a patient, you know, sitting in the waiting room, infusion, all that? Yeah. The most difficult thing for him was telling his two boys. His wife and you, but he delayed really telling his two children. One of them is 19 and the other 16. The 19 is in college. The 16, it was very, very tough on him. I mean, we sent him for therapy with uh, psychiatrists. That's something we talk a lot about in these meetings is children and the family and how the age makes such a difference in how you deal with it. Now, these kids were a little bit older. You know, you have two-year-olds, six-year-olds, all kinds of different issues. What were the specific issues with his children? Yeah, I mean, the 16-year-old was very close to him. The 19-year-old is in college. He's at the University of Chicago. Therefore, probably had a little bit more denial during this time. He just started last year. Therefore, he missed most of the therapy of his dad while the 16-year-old is with him. I rarely have seen him without his kid. That's why he His would son come. comes with him to yes, the clinic? that's why he would actually come for treatment very late. The nurses will accommodate him. I mean, he's in the hospital. Will accommodate him because his son would want to be with him. And so his son came after school? Yes. So and it, it used to be very difficult as to what to tell him on my behalf. And I always tell him, look, doc, do you want me to tell you everything in front of your son? And he would say, yeah, absolutely. And his son would search. I mean, he came, you know, he wanted to give his dad new Lesta at one point. And he thought that prevents infections, although the patient never had a problem with it. What's it like for you, Atif, to be in this kind of situation personally? It's really very, very difficult because it brings your own life into really focus, no question about it. I mean, he has two kids, I have three kids, sort of really the same age, and it becomes so personal. You want the scan to be better, you want the CA to go down, knowing it's not really going to make a humongous difference, whether there is another leash, you know, the CA goes by two, but you show your emotions much easier in front of him because he's a colleague of yours. How do you view talking to or providing advice to your patients about talking to children who are younger, three, five, seven years old? Very, very complicated situation, and we leave it to them. We talk to them, and we tell them what they want to do. We offer them a lot of help in terms of psychologists and support system, wellness community, Gilda's Club. But the most difficult thing is the first talk. And a couple of times, they will bring actually their kids for me to talk to them, which I never really thought it's a great way. I always bring my nurse with me to make me stop if she thinks, you know, I'm crossing the line, I'm talking to them like they are adults. And my wife doesn't think I know how to talk to my kids myself. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, we just wanted to lay this case out for a lot of reasons. One was the personal aspect, and we like to get some feedback, particularly from the docs in practice, about what it's like and also from Rich and Bob, but also this issue, and you know, we were talking about different tumors, you know, we've been through this with trastuzumab in the past about, you know, when you stop it, when you continue it, is there some effect, and there is going to be a trial, as we know, we tried to do trials in trastuzumab and breast cancer, and we couldn't get it done, 
So we want to talk about that too. How do you deal with it now without the data? And hopefully we're going to have some data. Rich, can you talk about this study? I was really fascinated to see that it actually got launched. So the study is for patients who have had an oxaliplatin 5-FU first-line therapy with bevacizumab. Could be Capoxbev or it could be Fulfoxbev, could be on-study, could be off-study, and have had progression while receiving the bevacizumab. And then they're randomized to arenotecan plus cetuximab plus or minus bevacizumab. There are two doses of bevacizumab. One is the 5 milligram per kilogram, the other the 10 milligram per kilogram. That was actually mandated by the NCI because the ECOG 3200 trial used 10 milligrams per kilogram, and so that's considered to be the biologically effective dose in second line, even though almost no one uses that in the discussions I've had with oncologists. So the point of that is to ask and hopefully answer the question, when a patient becomes refractory to their first line of therapy, which included bevacizumab, are they refractory to the chemo, are they refractory to the bev, or are they refractory to both? And there was some data presented from the so-called Bright Registry, and Axel Grothy was the lead author on that, about 2,000 patients. The patients who were in that were prospectively registered but not randomized. And about 600 patients got a continuation of BEV after progressing on BEV, and those patients had the best median survivals, uh, somewhere around the 25- to 27-month duration. And so part of the question is, in a large sample of patients who were managed according to the way we manage patients, is this enough data to say that there's something real going on here? And clearly there are a lot of oncologists that continue bevacizumab, like you did without chemo or with the second line of chemo. But we don't have an evidence base to do that, and if we were strictly being held to Medicare or Medicaid rules, they wouldn't pay for it, but they're not sophisticated enough to pick that up in most circumstances. hope they're not listening in. Right. <laughs> Sushil? Neil, the question I had for Dr. Goldberg was, wasn't there a trial recently that was closed because it was a combination of Vectabix with... Yes, the so-called PACE trial was closed, and there's very little data that's in the public domain about that. It's an interesting story because they were felt by ASCO to have violated embargo policy, and so that study was on the oral session in colorectal cancer and was pulled as a consequence of that. And the GI intergroup actually asked ASCO to make an exception to their rules because we felt that there was such strong interest on the part of people in practice as well as people designing trials to know what happened there. But what you can glean from the press release is that there was no advantage in outcome and there was a disadvantage in terms of toxicity by adding panitumumab to Fulfox Plus. So would there be some concern in terms of the combination here with cetuximab? Is there a combination of the two biologics or is it just they get either one? No, they would get cetuximab plus arenotecan plus or minus BEV. So it's essentially the BOND2 trial right. type regimen. And I don't have an issue with that. We still have the CLGB intergroup study going on, which is full FOX or full FURY plus cetuximab, bevacizumab, or both. And I'm the GI chair for CLGB, so we're having to defend this trial in front of the Data Safety Monitoring Committee every six months. They're carefully looking at it. You know, the data that we have is not surprisingly when you give five drugs instead of four, you get more side effects, but they're not 
out of bounds for what is considered reasonable. So, and what about the relevance, if any, of PACE with panitumumab as opposed to cetuximab? Well, they're different drugs, clearly. And, you know, we have a tendency to sort of say, oh, they're just different sides of the same coin, but they may well not be. The thing that's unbelievable about this situation to me is our investigators don't even know the data, right? You don't know the data. Well, we've made arrangements for the GI Intergroup Colon Cancer Committee to have an hour-long presentation from Amgen, but they made us sign confidentiality agreements, so... Even though we'll see the data, we can't talk about but, it. But I mean, as of today, you have not seen the data. I actually have seen the ah, data. Ah, okay. Okay. <laughs> come and, on, come on. And the reason, <laughs> the reason that I've seen the data is that we had concerns, you know, sure, should we close 80405? Of course. Right. And after hearing the data, we made a decision not to intervene in the trial. And that's as much as I can say, or I'll be in court. That actually is an extremely important piece of information. But that should answer the question you asked of the audience. I mean, in terms well, of participation no. in the trial, I think that's one concern. So, that okay, so that's one concern. I mean, I guess you feel a little right. bit comforted by knowing that trial is going to continue. But how would you feel? I know you put a lot of patients on study. What do you think about this trial design? I think it's a reasonable trial. I mean, I think that it's reasonable to continue the bevacizumab, and certainly whether the cetuximab adds something to it, I think is a good question. So I think it's a very reasonable trial. I mean, there are suggestive data from this bright registry right, bright that, registry, that yeah. maybe it's going to be positive. Is that enough? And I don't know how familiar you all are with that because it was just presented. Is that enough that you maybe wouldn't want to put a patient on the trial because you feel too strongly you want to continue it? Or how do you see that? I would look at it the other way, that there is the potential that the patient could get both drugs as opposed to just continuing just the bevacizumab. So I think there's potential advantage. IT, if you put a lot of patients on study, what do you think about this trial? Oh, design? I think it's very reasonable. Good. Uh, I mean, especially knowing that Rich looked at the data and he will continue with it because of the PACE study, which we put many patients on. It's a shame we don't know exactly the data, but I really feel much more comfortable now. Any of the docs here feel uncomfortable with that design? And could I ask, is part of this the frustration you felt when we didn't have the answer in Herceptin and you'd oh, yeah. like to get Absolutely. the answer? Yeah. Absolutely. Because that was my take. You know, we yeah. always were talking. Every time I do an interview, the same thing right. would come up. We can't get the trial done. The MD Anderson breast people were the ones, I think, trying to get the study done, and they couldn't get people in it. But it sounds like maybe this one's going to get an answer, which would be awesome. Bob? Uh, although the only caveat I would make, Neil, is I think this is a good trial, but I think you wouldn't necessarily conclude that adding BEV to this particular regimen is about BEV increasing the cytotoxic. We have some sense that there is a positive interaction between BEV and cetuximab, and that may be the reason why that particular arm does better. It may not, but if it does, is it about... BEV plus irinotecan, or is it about BEV plus C225, or all three? So it's not as pure as, let's say, saying oxaliplatin failures who've had Avastin then get randomized to Fulfiri versus Fulfiri BEV, which to me is a cleaner way of really answering the BEV question is, is BEV continuing to contribute? I think what we can say is, since our patients don't just continue not to progress. It's not like the moment you start bevacizumab, everybody's tumor stops growing and never grows again. So to me, there must be resistance mechanisms to BEV. I think the issue is, is there relative resistance where the drug is able to slow progression and slow the angiogenic process without stopping it? 
and there may be other mechanisms by which BEV is working, anti-VEGF mechanisms. But it must at some point have a way to resist the addition of bevacizumab into your system. The question for me is, is that occur after you're done with your first line of therapy? Maybe it occurs after your fourth line of therapy, which frankly, a lot of people are getting at least third line therapy. So it's going to be an open question in terms of what does BEV resistance mean? What does it look like? And when is it actually happening that it's clinically relevant? This trial is going to try to get at that somewhat, but I don't think it's as pure as it could be. Rich, can you talk about the thinking that went on in deciding on this design as opposed to, for example, a design that Bob just talked about? Well, the trial actually was designed by your colleagues at SWOG, and Chuck Blanke was involved. Philip Gold, I think, is the PI of the study, and it's jointly sponsored by CLGB and ECOG, so it is a consensus design. You know, anytime you design things by committee, there are compromises. But this also was reviewed intensively with the FDA, and they were part of the committee that influenced its design. We would like very much not to have to do the 10 milligram per kg of Aston part of it because it increases the size of the trial by a third. And we don't think it's really a relevant question, but that was not negotiable. It kind of reminds you a little bit how we continue androgen deprivation in prostate cancer even after patients progress. And of course, there, I don't think there's ever been any clinical research looking at it. What about the issue how to approach this question off-study in the absence of the kind of data we're going to get out of IBET? Bob, how do you approach this really difficult decision? Yeah, I think, you know, in my own practice, this is a nuanced area. I think if somebody blows through frontline therapy that includes bevacizumab, I just think they're proving to you they're resistant to all components of that regimen, including bevacizumab. So if somebody takes a Bev-containing regimen and they progress after four cycles, I usually don't continue it in second line. If they've had a response that is gradually lost, which is this case, I probably wouldn't have done Bev alone. I think it's reasonable to think of that as sort of a maintenance program. So if the patient said, I just will not take chemo, you would have just stopped everything? Yeah, I would probably give him a chemo-free interval chemo the and holiday, see how things go over the next couple of months. Bev alone, I think, you know, having done a little stuff with it in other diseases, is not like taking an aspirin. I mean, there people do have a sense of fatigue. The blood pressure is still an issue. And so I'm not particularly inclined to use it as a maintenance program just because I think it has some baggage. It's not like having 5-FU and Oxali in the mix, but there's still something to it that I think does lead to a little bit of a drag on people's energy stores. Rich, how do you approach a decision off-study? You know, I have not been using BEV, continuing it on, in part because there hasn't been data to support it, and in part because it's expensive. And I have to admit that the bright registry data is intriguing to me and that there probably will be some cases in which I will continue the BEV, but I haven't figured out exactly what those cases will be yet. Yeah, that bright registry has generated so much great data over the last couple of years, really seeing what happens in practice. Bob, one of the things that came out of it that I think was most striking, and Herb Hurwitz talked about this. Rich? I wanted to make one other point. I was the discussant of the bright poster discussion session at ASCO, and I have to admit I was given 13 abstracts to discuss in 15 minutes, so it was a bit of a challenge. And so it was really boiled down. But 
the format that I took was I said, okay, question asked, questions answered, questions raised by each of the posters that I discussed. And for this one, I would say questions answered, none were really answered. Questions asked were, should you continue Bevacizumab or not? And the question raised is, will this change practice and should it? And I suspect that it probably will give people who are on the fence the push that they need to say, I'm going to do more Bev continuation. Bob, what about this issue of the toxicity that came out in the Bright Registry in terms of what's going on in community practice? Well, I think, you know, one of the things we know is the events with Bevacizumab, I don't want to say they're unpredictable. I mean, we know what things can happen. And I don't think there's anything that an academic oncologist can do or a community-based oncologist can do to sort of ameliorate those things other than treat hypertension. I mean, I think it's a matter of choosing patients who you think are not a particular risk for ATEs. You know, I think the age issue is not as strong a worry for me as a prior history of a stroke or a prior history of an MI. And bowel perforation, at least from what I can tell, is a pretty darn unpredictable thing. So to me, it's not very surprising because I don't think people can really intervene in what BEV does other than manage hypertension. But I mean, bowel perforation and Bright was the same, actually, maybe even a little lower than what was seen right. in the trial. But again, because we don't really understand the mechanisms of all that and the predictability, I think if you're using BEV, whether you're at MD Anderson or in Stanford, Connecticut, you know, you're going to see a certain percentage of patients have a perf.